Amen. If you want to turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Romans chapter 11, we'll be concluding our series on the five solas this morning. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. So it's been great to go through this series with you all looking at the five solas. We've tried to look back and see what is the foundation of our faith. What's the core of our faith as Protestant, Bible-believing Christians? What is at the bedrock of what we believe? And we've looked in this five-week series and we've tried to see that we that salvation is found in Scripture alone. That while creation is great, it proclaims the glory of God. We sang about that this morning, that it is Scripture alone that reveals God's plan of redemption, His plan of salvation for sinful people. We talked about how salvation is found in the person and work of Christ alone, that He's the only mediator between God and man, and He is the only person that can make sinners right before a holy God. We looked at the doctrine of grace alone, that it is by God's unconditional grace that we are saved and made right before Him. And then finally, last week, we looked at faith alone, that this is the gift of God, not of works, This is how we are justified before the God of the universe. And so as we turn our eyes to this final alone, this final solo, we're going to look at solo deo gloria, the glory of God alone. And what we're really asking this morning is what's the point of everything? (laughs) What's the point of all this? What's the point of this salvation that we've been talking about for the last five weeks? What's the point of all things? Who gets the credit for this salvation? Why did God choose to save a people for Himself? And really, what is the heart of the Christian message? What is the heart behind the gospel? And we'll see that the answer is the glory of God alone. The glory of God in all things, over all things, solo deo gloria. And that in many ways, God's glory alone is kind of the central strand that connects all the other solas, right? It is God alone who spoke authoritatively through His Word in the Scripture. It is God who condescended in the person of Christ. It is God who by His grace extends favor, undeserved favor, unmerited favor, demerited favor rather, to His people. And it is God who gives the gift of faith to His people, receiving glory for all these things. And so our goal today is that we will see that salvation and faith is not man-centered. It's not focused on man ultimately, but it is focused on God. It is God-centered. That it is focused and purposed for the glory of God alone, who not only possesses all glory in and of Himself, but has created all things for His glory, sustains all things for His own glory, has purposed all things for His glory, and redeems His people to manifest His glory in, through, and by them, and will finally consummate all things to the praise of His glorious grace. And that the glory of God is the purpose of all things, and it is our greatest aim and joy as God's people. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I will pray for us, and then we will look to God's Word this morning. 
So we come to Romans chapter 11, and it's really at the tail end of Romans chapter 11, and it's really Paul having talked about how sinful people are, God's work of salvation by justifying ungodly people, by adopting them into his family, by sanctifying them by the Spirit, electing them from the foundation of the world, and Paul cannot help but conclude with these marvelous words, and that's where we'll be looking this morning. I'll begin at verse 33. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given him a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And we pray this morning that as we contemplate your glory in all things, that we would come to find that as our final end and satisfaction, that we would not seek our own glory this morning, but that we would seek the glory of the triune God alone. Would you take these words and would you write them upon our hearts? We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at three different things this morning, and they're all going to be focused around God's glory. We're going to first see God's glory in and of Himself. God's glory in and of Himself. What does it mean that God is infinitely glorious? We're going to look secondly at God's glory as the scope or the purpose of all the Scriptures. And thirdly and finally, we're going to see God's glory as the end the telos, the end goal of all things. So first we're going to look at God's glory in and of himself. So as we said, the apostle here, after taking 11 chapters to talk about the glory of the gospel of Christ, this salvation that he has won, he cannot help but cry out in this almost hymn of praise and doxology as he praises the infinite, eternal, incomprehensible God who alone deserves our glorious praise. And he does this in verse 33 when he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways, that our God possesses all wisdom, all power, all knowledge, all life, goodness, and glory in and of himself. That no one, as he says, has been his counselor. He says, who has been his counselor? It's a rhetorical question, okay? The answer is no one. <laughs> no one has been God's counselor. God doesn't stand in need of someone say, okay, what should I do here, okay? He alone is all-wise, all-knowing. No one has been his counselor. And as we see in verse 35, no one has given him anything which was not already his. It says, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Could we give something to God so that he might be indebted to us? And the answer, again, is no. 
No one has given him anything that which he did not already have or was not given by his power alone. This includes life itself, which Paul says is from him. We did not make ourselves alive. It is not us that sustains our heart. It is God. So this includes life. This includes even our good works, which do not put us in debt to God, but rather flow from our love from Him and add nothing to God and give nothing to God. So this includes life. It includes our good works. But we'll see this morning that it also includes God's glory. God's glory. That because God is infinitely glorious, unending. He is infinitely glorious in and of Himself, apart from His creation, apart from His works of providence, or even redemption, we cannot add to, enhance, or make God more glorious. We cannot increase God's glory. And you might be saying, whoa, Kendall, <laughs> that sounds wrong. That sounds wrong to our ears. Even though in Scripture we are commanded to give God glory, and it is a great sin to give God glory, we cannot make Him more glorious. We cannot add something to His infinite glory. And maybe you've never thought of it this way before, that God's glory is infinite. It's unbounded. If something can be added to, it's not infinite. It is infinite, it is unbounded, and it is in and of Himself. This is what we call the aseity of God, His self-sufficiency. He doesn't stand in need of something else or someone else like you and I do. He's not dependent on us or in need of us. In the book of Job, Eliphaz says this in chapter 22, can a man be profitable to God? <laughs> Again, another rhetorical question. The answer is no. Can a man profit God? Can a man give something that he does not already have? And the answer is no. The Lord, speaking in Isaiah 48, verse 11, says, My glory I will not give to another. My glory I will not give to another. Our confession in chapter 2 of On God and of the Holy Trinity says this in paragraph 2. I think this is very profound and very helpful. It says, God, having all life and glory and goodness and blessedness in and of Himself, is alone in and unto Himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which He has made nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. Right? Now this may sound like an odd way to begin a sermon on the glory of God by saying, you can't add to God's glory. <laughs> right? That sounds counterintuitive. You might be saying to yourself, I can't add to God's glory. There's nothing I can do to increase or enhance His glory. And the answer is yes. And that's a good thing. <laughs> that's a very good thing. Because if there was a way that we could increase God's glory, if there's a way that we could make Him more God, then He wouldn't be God. If there's a God that we worship that stands in need of us and the glory that we give Him, then the God we are serving might look like 
a lot more like us than the God of Scripture, right? That's dependent on us, that somehow stands in need of us. But if the triune God is infinitely glorious in and of Himself, and is the alone fountain of all being, from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, then this is good news for you and I. Because He does not stand in need of us, but stands independent. Our glorious God is not like the pagan gods that stand in need of the worshiper, but, are, but He is the all-sufficient, self-sufficient, unshakable God. And that the point of God creating anything, including us, was not because He lacked something or stood in need of us, but was for the manifestation of His own glory to the praise of His glorious grace. And this is actually the scope and the purpose of what all of Scripture is revealing. And that brings us to our second point this morning, God's glory, the scope of all the Scriptures. God's glory, the scope of all the Scriptures. That as you go through Scripture, it becomes very clear that the purpose, that the end goal of all things, or as our confession says it, the scope of the whole is to give all glory to God. Not giving glory to man, but giving all glory to God. That from beginning to end, the Bible is about God receiving His glory. Not only for who He is, but for what He has done in creation, in providence, in redemption, and finally in consummation. But it's interesting, it's not only God receiving glory, but the Scripture, as we read, also talks about the whole earth being filled with the glory of God. Psalm 72 says, Blessed be His glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with His glory. God's glory dwelling with His people. Now, while we can say, in a sense, right now the whole earth is filled with His glory, this is what the angels say in Isaiah chapter 6, they say the whole earth is filled with His glory. Glory. God's glory is seen in creation, in providence. This is God's natural or general revelation to all peoples. Yes, the earth is filled with His glory. But we also see in Scripture the sense in which there is a special, redemptive, eschatological glory that has not yet filled the earth. And that in one sense, the story of Scripture is about the glory of God filling the earth and dwelling with His people. That as you go through the Bible, there seems to be this progression from these more limited local manifestations of God's glory in the Old Testament. Think about the glory cloud for the people of Israel. Think about the tabernacle and the temple where we see God's glory manifested in a limited local expression. And this progression from that towards this universal eschatological goal of God's glory filling the entire earth as the waters cover the seas. And this is what we see from Genesis to Revelation, this story of God's glory filling the earth. That as we read in the book of Genesis, not only is man made in the image and glory of God, but he's placed in Eden, this special dwelling place of God's glory on the earth. This is where God dwell in a special way. 
And as we've said so many times, Adam's task, he was commissioned to reproduce the image of God and to fill the earth with the glory of God, producing sons of glory that would fill the earth with the glory of God. But we've also said so many times that Adam failed, right? He chose the glory of Satan, the glory of self over the glory of God. And that because of the fall into sin, instead of mankind building the kingdom of God for the glory of God, we see in the Tower of Babel this physical expression of man seeking his own glory, building the kingdom of self to the glory of man and not the glory of God. And this is really what we see in our day, right? This is no different than what we see in our day. Man gathered together, building a kingdom for self. It's all about independence, about progress, autonomy. We don't need God. We're going to work our way up to God and do this all for the glory of ourselves. This is probably what Augustine would call the city of man, working that which is for the glory of self. And we see this even in the Old Testament. And even though God will come down in judgment in Genesis chapter 11 and divide the languages, right? There was one unified language before Babel and after Babel. There is multiplied, diverse languages. The nations are scattered. Even though God comes down in judgment, we see that He does not abandon His plan to dwell with His people in His glory. And we see that in the book of Exodus. We see that in the book of Exodus and the people of Israel. That maybe one of the most familiar things that we know in the Old Testament in reference to God's glory is what's called the glory cloud. <laughs> it's named after the glory, right? The glory cloud, this pillar of fire and smoke that led the people out of Egypt, that God judges the people of Egypt, the enemies of God in the Exodus, and God's glory is manifested in this pillar, this pillar of fire and smoke, this glory cloud that leads the people out of slavery and ultimately leads them to the promised land. It is the same glory that fills the tabernacle, this temporary moving place of God on the earth. It is also the same glory that fills the temple, the special dwelling place of God in Mount Zion. So we see God's glory dwelling with God's people. But there's this big problem that is very present in the Old Testament. And the problem is the people are really sinful. <laughs> the people are extremely sinful. And that if they encounter God's glory without a sacrifice or without a mediator, they die. <laughs> One person even touches the Ark of the Covenant to catch it from falling and dies. Two people, Nadab and Abihu, come before the Lord in a way that He has not prescribed. They come before His glory and they are put to death. That man, because of his sin, cannot enter God's holy presence and glory and live. And so we see in the Old Testament this tension between God's glory and the people because God's glory is either a blessing or a judgment. It either brings salvation for God's people, leading them out of Exodus, out of Egypt, or it brings curse 
and death. And so there's this pattern in the Old Testament where God draws near to His people in the glory cloud, but the people sin, they're exiled, and they're ultimately thrown out of the promised land, and the glory departs to the point where at the end of the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 10 sees a day when the glory of God departs from the temple. Is Ichabod, right? The glory of God has departed. God leaves the temple in judgment. But we also see in the prophets this promise This speaking about a day when God's glory will dwell again with His people, both Jew and Gentile, a greater, more permanent glory that is not just for the people of Israel, but is for all nations. And so as we come to the New Testament, we see that in the Word taking on flesh, that the very glory of God has dwelt, or what John says, tabernacled among us. That in the person of Christ, we have God's glory dwelling amongst God's people. The only Son from the Father, this is the glory of God in the person of Christ. To the point where in John chapter 2, Jesus can identify Himself as the true temple. He says, destroy this temple and raise it up in three days and I will, he says, I'll raise it up in three days, talking about the temple of his own body. He is the special dwelling place of God and his glory on the earth. And this is where we see the contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that in the person of Christ, it is so much better than what we saw in the Old Testament, right? Jesus is so much better than a mobile cloud or an earthly temple. He is the unique and final revelation of God's glory to God's redeemed people, what we will call the King of glory. And that it is only in the person of Christ that the problem of our sin is resolved once and for all. Because He comes first not in a state of glory or exaltation, but He comes in the state of humiliation. He comes not in the glory of conquest, but in the glory of the cross. He doesn't come as the conquering King, but He comes as the lowborn King that will die for His people. That He is the substitutionary sacrifice the perfect mediator that all the other shadows in the Old Testament pointed forward to. And that by His death and His glorious resurrection from death, you and I are able to now enter God's glorious presence where before there would only be death. We can now dwell with God in His glory forever and ever because of what Christ has done. That it is His Spirit that leads us not out of earthly slavery, but our spiritual slavery to sin and leads us to the heavenly promised land, heaven itself. That because of what Christ did in His life and His death and His resurrection, God's glorious presence is not bad news for God's people. It's not judgment and curse, but it's blessing. (laughs) It's good news for God's people. And that 
by saving unworthy sinners, God's glory and His grace are magnified in saving people through the judgment that Christ underwent. And this glory that was once contained to the Holy of Holies is now filling the earth in the proclamation of the gospel, in sinners repenting of their sins and turning to Christ and being saved. And it is an inward, unseen glory by the Spirit making our souls new. And as Paul will say, he calls us temples of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit-filled people this message of the gospel going to all nations. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts, that on the day of Pentecost, we have what I like to call this reversal of Babel, where before God came down in judgment and divided their language, on the day of Pentecost, God comes down by the Spirit not to curse, but to bless, not to divide their language, but by the gift of tongues, unite their languages, showing this glorious gospel is not just for the people of Israel, but is for all nations, both Jew and Gentile. So we can see from beginning to end, all of Scripture is pointing to the glory of God in all things. God receiving glory for what He has made in saving people from their sins and filling the earth with image-bearing sons and daughters of God who have been born again by the Spirit and are filled with His Spirit. But before we can close this morning, we need to look at our third and final point, God's glory, the end of all things. God's glory, the end of all things. That not only does God receive glory for who He is and what He's done, and not only does He receive glory by filling the earth with His glory, but we see that the ultimate purpose and end of all things is God's glory alone. Not the glory of man, not the glory of self, but the glory of the triune God. Not only for His works of creation and providence, but His works of redemption, and at the end of all things, consummating that which He began that at the end of all things, when the Lord returns, it is God's redeemed people who have been saved by Christ, united to Him by faith, and forgiven of their sin by God's grace alone, we will be glorified with our Savior Christ, the first fruits of our glorious resurrections. Those who are alive at His coming will be changed, and those who have died will be raised in a bodily glorious resurrection, raised incorruptible with no sin to the praise of His glorious mercy. But those who did not trust in Christ will be raised to dishonor and suffer eternal punishment to the praise of His glorious justice, both to the glory of God alone. And that at the very end of all things, God's creation, which is now corrupted and infested with sin, will be one day renewed in the new heavens and the new earth. And Habakkuk 2 14 will come to pass, God's glory will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. And we read about this 
in the last book of Scripture, in Revelation chapter 1, we see that at the end of all things, it is God's glory and His glory alone that will fill His renewed heavens and earth. John says this, And then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And John goes on to say, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its light is the Lamb. We see at the end of all things that it is the glory of Christ and His redeemed people that fill the new heavens and the new earth. So as we begin to contemplate the glory of God and think about what it means for our lives, two things to think about this morning. The first thing is this. God is worthy of all of our glory. God is worthy of all glory that the triune God is worthy of all of our praise, all of our honor, and He alone is worthy of glory. No one else, no other thing that is created, but God alone, the uncreated One, is worthy of all glory. And as we confess this morning, this is our chief end. This is why we were created. <laughs> what is man's chief end? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I think in our world, there's so much loss of purpose. There's so much loss of why do we exist? The world has told everyone that you're just a chance. You're a consequence of the big bang that these molecules rubbed together and created life. And so there's no purpose for anything. There's no real meaning to anything at all. But when we see that it is the glory of God in His people that is our purpose and our great aim. And it's only when we begin to live for God's glory alone and not our glory and not the glory of man that we actually enjoy our greatest dignity as people made in the image of God and our highest end. That it is when we begin to speak for God's glory according to God's Word alone. It is when, when we begin to see salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. It is when we rest in the person of Christ alone and His finished work that we begin to see that it is all for God's glory and not for ourselves. Whether it's salvation or whatever we do, it is all ultimately for the glory of God. And I think this frees us in a way to do all things for the glory of God. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? He says, so whether you eat or whether you drink, do everything for the glory of God. That this frees us to live all of life 
to the glory of God, seeking to do good works unto Him and enjoy the good gifts that He has given us. And I think this is in many ways connected to our Christian liberty, that we've been freed to do good works. And one of the definitions of a good work is the glory of God. That a good work is not something man invents or something that is man-made, but it is according to God's law. It is by faith alone, and it is, has to be ultimately to the glory of God alone. That you could do the nicest thing in the world, you could do the most amazing thing, you could know all of theology in the world, but if it's not unto the glory of God, if it's ultimately for puffing yourself up, if it's in pride, if it's to make yourself look good, it is not for the glory of God, it is for the glory of self and pride. And so our good works need to be for the glory of God alone, not for our own gain. We can also enjoy God, God's good gifts. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it, if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is made holy by the word and prayer, right? That we can enjoy God's get, good gifts to His glory. We don't have to be bound by legalistic laws or man-made religion, aestheticism, we can enjoy God's good gifts to His glory when they're done in faith and according to His law. But I think profoundly this morning we see that God's glory also frees us to lay down our lives for God. Lay down our lives for God and daily pick up our cross. That we see in the person of Christ a model for our Christian life, right? He did not first come in glory. He did not first come in exaltation, but He came in humility. He came to suffer on the cross. This is what we call cross-centered spirituality. It is suffering and then glory. And so for you and I this morning, we will not experience glory this side of heaven. We will suffer. We will be persecuted for our faith. And so we need to remember that as we seek to live for God's glory, and we are also called to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, ultimately pointing to God and not to ourselves. But secondly, and finally this morning, we see God's glory as worthy of all of our praise, all of our honor, but we also see God's glory as a profound comfort in times of suffering. God's glory as a profound comfort in times of suffering, that all of us in this room have experienced suffering in one way or another. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's death in our family. Maybe it's tragedy. Maybe it's abuse that we face. Maybe it's sin in our own life. Maybe it is persecution from the world, from our family. These frowning providences of God that we all will suffer and face this side of heaven. And we can be tempted to think that these sufferings have no meaning, that they're all pointless, that they have no purpose. Yes, I know I'm suffering this, but ultimately, does it really have any meaning? Does it have any purpose? Or is it all for nothing? But when we see that the purpose and end goal of all things is God's glory, and the good of His redeemed people, we have a profound 
place of comfort. What does the Apostle Paul say a couple chapters before in Romans chapter 8, verse 28? He, said, he says, for those that love God and are called according to His purpose, all things work together for good. That this is a pre- great and precious promise for God's people. Paul doesn't say some things work together for good. He doesn't say most things work together for good. He doesn't even say 99% of things work together for good. But for those that love God and are called according to His purpose, all things work together for good. The times of great joy and also the times of great suffering and sorrow. That God purposes all things for His own glory and the good of His redeemed people. And this gives us comfort that we can face these difficult trials and tribulations. We can walk through the valley of the shadow of death knowing that we have the shepherd watching over us. As one pastor said, we often suffer without answers, but we need not suffer without hope. (laughs) We need not suffer without hope. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where every tear will be wiped away, death will be no more, there'll be no sin in us and sin in our brothers and sisters, but there will be only God dwelling with His redeemed people, and that is the end of all things. And so this morning, may we live for God's glory, but not just this morning, may we give our whole lives living to the glory of God alone. Solo Deo Gloria. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your glory, that you are pleased to not only create us and by your providence govern, uphold, and sustain us, purposing all things for your glory, but in your grace and sovereignty, save a people for yourself, that you might receive glory in your act of infinite mercy. We know, Lord, that as we walk through this life, we will face great suffering, great trial. We will be tempted to see our suffering in this life as meaningless. But when we come to see your glory as the end of all things, we know that it is not meaningless. It is not without purpose, but it is for your glory and ultimately our good. And so this morning, Lord, would you help us to rest in these great promises? Would we have an anchor for our soul this morning that pierces heaven itself? And may we look to heaven this morning, not to the things of this earth that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, where you dwell and where you will bring us for all eternity. And so we thank you for Christ. We thank you for him who has made this all possible by His work. We come trusting in Christ alone this morning, and we come resting in His great work of redemption. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.